Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting May 13, 2016, we speak with Devin Spence Benson about her new book, Anti-Racism in Cuba, The Unfinished Revolution, from the University of North Carolina Press, and excerpted in the journal's new spring issue, cover line, Black Lives Matter Everywhere. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. Control con la vigilancia y con todo eso. Vas por una calle, hay un policía, van dos personas, una persona de la raza blanca y una persona de la raza negra. Van a pedir el carnet de identidad, primero se lo piden al de la raza negra que al de la raza blanca. Racism remains a reality in Cuba today despite and, ironically to some degree, because of the revolution's early but short-lived anti-discrimination reforms. Black opposition leader and human rights activist Bertha Antunes, in that YouTube video posted last year by the Freedom Collection, says that if a black man and a white man are walking down the street, a policeman will ask the black man for ID first, and then maybe the white man. Worse yet, she charges that her brother Jorge suffered far harsher treatment than other dissidents because of his black skin during 17 years as a political prisoner. Official prejudice in Cuba is often echoed by informal social stigmatization and discrimination, but a pushback against both by a growing number of Afro-Cubans now coincides with the reopening of diplomatic relations between the communist island and the United States, according to Devin Spence Benson assistant professor of history, African and African-American studies at Louisiana State University. Her new book on the subject is Anti-Racism in Cuba, the Unfinished Revolution, from the University of North Carolina Press, excerpted in World Policy Journal's new spring issue under the headline, Not Blacks, But Citizens. It also was featured in a talking policy post with Benson for the WPJ blog, and we discussed it recently for this podcast. Professor Benson, welcome to World Policy on Air. Good morning. Remind us first about Cuban revolutionary leader Fidel Castro's 1959 anti-discrimination campaign, headlined, Not Blacks But Citizens, its, its goals, means, and accomplishments. Thank you so much for that question. I'm really excited to be here today and to talk a little bit more about my work. I think the first thing that I want to say about the 1959 anti-discrimination campaign was how unprecedented it was. In some ways, it was a way of inviting Afro-Cubans to participate into the revolution, and it made amazing achievements for Cuba. So what it looked like on the ground was, one, it was a national integration campaign. If before the revolution there were segregated social clubs and um, what was informal segregation practices, such as where you would have blacks walk on one side of the park and whites walk on the other. After the revolution, one of the things you start seeing is black and white and mulatto children going to school together. The literacy campaign really brought the whole country together. You start seeing this national integration campaign. They get rid of the segregated clubs. So these, in some ways, I like to think that it opened the doors for conversations about race and racism, and it became something that the revolutionary government said that they had to do as one of their four battles. Um, for the revolutionary government to tackle. 
I think that when we talk about its accomplishments, it had incredible accomplishments. By the 1980s, Afro-Cubans had the same levels of education, the same lifespan, the same um, largely um, many were professionals and had professional jobs, working in integrated spaces. If we look at the numbers, Cuba was doing better than the United States or Brazil in any of these markers of equality, healthcare, education, professional jobs for its black and brown citizens. So I think in some ways we have to congratulate what the Cuban revolution has done to be able to accomplish so much with this anti-discrimination campaign. But you say the campaign ended too soon to really root out private practices of prejudice and moreover made it difficult to even address complaints of Afro-Cubans in the decades that followed. Talk more about both those failures and the inequities that persisted. The way that I talk about it in the book is I like to think of it as a campaign that was made up of contradictions. And when I talk to people about my book, I also talk about how you can package anti-racism with sometimes racist ideologies as well. So one of the things that you see is even though you have this unprecedented campaign to offer and provide many things to Afro-Cubans as a part of the revolution, which is trying to uplift everyone, you also notice that on one hand, the revolution very quickly wants to say that it's achieved this goal. So by 1961, immediately they're already saying we have eliminated racism. Racism is no longer a part of the Cuban revolution. It's not a problem we have to deal with. Once you start closing conversations, you don't have as much there's not as much space for people to continue to say, well, wait, I went to work and I felt like I was discriminated against. You can't call your boss who's a revolutionary. You can't say that they're racist or they discriminated against you if the revolution and therefore all revolutionaries aren't racist. So you sort of get caught in this catch-22, right, where on one hand we open up the door to have conversations, but by saying that we've eliminated in three short years, you don't have those spaces anymore. I think the second real big challenge is some of the ways that blackness was represented in the revolutionary press. So in the book, you'll see that there are 25 images of political cartoons where you see black caricatures and sketches drawn as infantile or comical or not equal to white revolutionaries. I like to think about this as like the other side of the coin, right? Because on one hand, it's like we want to celebrate blackness. We want to include black people into the revolution. But it's possible that we only want to include a particular type of blackness. And we expect them to be grateful. So we want them to be grateful and loyal, but they're never going to be equal to us. One of the ways that this plays out is then that it allows prejudiced attitudes to persist, right? Because they haven't actually addressed how do people feel about the stereotypes, the negative stereotypes that are often linked with blackness in Cuba and throughout the world. Despite that, in your book, you discuss ways in which black and mixed race Cubans through the 1960s pushed to eliminate racial discrimination and make equal citizenship a reality for Cubans of color. To what extent and why has space opened up in recent years for increased activism and public discussion about racial inequality? And that's really a great question. I do want to really emphasize that I don't think Afro-Cubans ever gave up on the fight for racial equality. They continue to push for it, often finding creative ways to do that in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. So if you look at Afro-Cuban art, if you look at Afro-Cuban films, literature, a lot of the things that were going on in the 60s and 70s continue to have a focus around blackness, around Caribbeanness, and black consciousness, and they try to find ways to work within a system that has already claimed that it's eliminated racial discrimination to push for equality. That said, in the 1990s, you really do see a much stronger public push for the revolution to live up to its racial claims. Um, and I think that becomes because in the 1990s, with the fall of the Soviet Union, Cuba has this economic crisis, 
right? The, the special period is what it's called. But they have this economic crisis where once you lose your main trading partner, they're, they're, everything is gone, right? And this is a moment that we can't – we have to remember that the United States decides to tighten the embargo rather than offer aid. So there were long lines for basic foods. Um, people didn't have any transportation to get to work. They would bicycle for miles and miles to try and get to work, but then not have anything to eat once they got there. So people lost a lot of weight. Like, it was just – it was awful, and the memories that people have from this period are terrible. Cuba then begins to realize that it has to do economic reform. They open up the economy um, in some ways. They have a number of joint business ventures where um, European, Canadian, Latin American, other countries invest in the country, and they really start turning towards tourism. I think one of the biggest issues that happens with tourism is that many of these joint business ventures wanted to have people, they wanted to hire Cubans who looked a particular way. And so when you start seeing that everyone who looked at the, worked at the hotel was fair-skinned or white, and that everyone who was working, you know, driving the taxi cabs, everyone who was in the formal tourist economy looked a particular way, I think Afro-Cubans are like, wait, this is supposed to be economic reform. We stayed here. We supported this revolution. How is it that we're not benefiting from these reforms because no one will hire us, even though we have the same levels of education, if not better, we have language skills, we could work with tourists. But it's because the understanding was that tourists didn't want to see black Cubans in those jobs. They could be cooks, but they couldn't be the hotel manager. I think this is what really prompted Afro-Cubans to be like, look, this is the moment we have to talk about this. So with this opening of the economy, there was also more of an opening for debates about things just in general. Because Cubans were saying, we need to figure out what we're going to do with our revolution to make it still work, even though we don't have this trading partner. And racism was one of the things that people put back on the table to talk about. I do want to say one corrective, though, is a lot of people talk about racism returning in the 1990s, and I think it's important for us to think about how, where does racism go, right? It doesn't return. It's not possible for it to, it's not hiding under the table, I often say to my students. I think we need to remember that racism was clearly persistent, negative stereotypes about blackness, jokes about black people. All of this continued throughout the revolution. What changed in the 1990s is people started very vocally and visibly talking about it and saying, look, it's now time for the revolution to live up to this goal, to finish, right? It's racial claims. You note that both Fidel and Raul Castro, his brother and presidential successor, subsequently and publicly have recognized that racism still exists in Cuba and is, quote, one of the most pressing concerns on the island today, unquote. Uh, talk about what the government has been doing about it beyond that acknowledgement, especially actually assisting uh, at least some activists. I think this is a really great point because in some ways, with the push from Afro-Cuban activists, and all Cubans to really say that the government needed to live up to its promises um, coming out of the 1990s, is that's when um, both um, Fidel Castro and Raul Castro both recognized that this is a continued problem and that it is something that the revolution has to figure out. And I think one of the things that they do, probably the best example is the way that they started supporting the hip-hop movement. So there were rappers who were using rap and hip-hop as a way young black men and women, um, oftentimes living on the outskirts of Havana in some of the um, large apartment buildings that are out there, were using rap to talk about 
many of the things that they, that the struggles that they were facing, right? So they're talking about how they can't get a job in the tourist hotel. They're talking about how they don't have family members outside of the United States who can send them back remittances or money or clothes or food during a really difficult moment of economic struggle. So they're rapping about these things in their lyrics and they're like, you know, what's supposed to happen? And then what was interesting is that that was a moment when the government was like, we hear you and they create the National Cuban Rap Agency. So instead, and these are clearly people who are challenging the government, making, not challenging the government, that's probably not the best word, but they're definitely making critiques of what the state is doing and asking the state to live up to its promises. And yet, instead of, I think people like to think that no one in Cuba can ever say anything. So they weren't censored, they weren't, you know, they weren't um, in prison. Rather, they create the National Cuban Rap Agency and um, hip-hop artists and rappers actually start getting a government salary and they do this work in official venues. So I think it becomes a moment of where we're still trying to see that tension between something becoming a part of the state and at the same time still doing the work of putting out the concerns and the um, struggles that people in communities face. It's fascinating. Given, given this complex of the state grassroots connections, where does the role of government and, and that of private action begin in bringing about social change? And is there a danger that activists and activism is really sort of co-opted from the start? Yeah, this is a great question. And it's actually one of the things that I was thinking about the, as I was going through the work that I do about the 1960s, right? So because on one hand, when we think about movements for um, liberation, movements for um, racial justice, when we think about those types of movements, and they look different in different places, right? So in some places, they're more grassroots. Like we might imagine that that is how like the civil rights movement was, right? It's not necessarily connected to the government. And then, but what we wanted here in the United States was we wanted to see the government take on something like that. Whereas in Cuba, it was different. It's a state-sponsored anti-discrimination campaign from the beginning, right? So where the state has the power and the authority to do national integration, to um, work with employment, literacy, healthcare, to actually provide all of these things for citizens of all colors and including Cubans of color. So on one hand, like there's this, the fact that the state is involved gives it the type of power to make quick and fast change. On the other hand, once the state celebrates and says, okay, we've achieved this and closes down and says, okay, if we've done it to our satisfaction, there's not as much space for activists to continue to do that type of work. I think there has to be some type of collaboration, probably. If we want to actually achieve anti-racism in Cuba, in the United States, or anywhere, there's going to have to be a collaboration between state and government and official policy, as well as between activists. But I don't think that activists are co-opted just because they're working with a government. I think what's most important is that they maintain true to their ideals and continue to put the concerns and struggles of everyday people on the table. You emphasize the often overshadowed activism of Afro-Cuban women, uh, highlighting the Afro-Cubanist project as a contemporary example of that kind of activism. Who's involved and what are they doing to promote Afro-Cuban women's voices and other contributions and, and to change public perceptions regarding race and gender? Yeah, the Afro Cubanas um, project is one of the uh, community groups that I worked with while I was doing my research in Cuba, and it's a really incredible organization. I think, it's, again, we have to remember that so many of these community projects, and I'll talk a little bit more about them later, come out of the 
stark economic need that people were facing throughout the 1990s and continue to face into the um, early 2000s and even today, which means that initially a a program like Afro-Cubana starts out because there are women who see each other struggling and needing things. They're like, oh, you need, a extra cup. you need an extra cup of oil. I'll bring oil to the next meeting. Or you need this for your uh, – your daughter needs this, and because she's sick, we'll get her this medicine. Or, so it sort of starts off as just people meeting together, a variety of women, young and old, different types of professionals. Um, so women who do all sorts of things. Want a, you know, someone works in theater. Someone else works as a historian. Someone else you know, is a medical professional. It starts off as a community support group. What was fascinating to me about Afro-Cubanas is how then it starts off as a community support group that merges, that evolves into an activist group that really says that one of their main goals is to change the negative stereotypes about black women in Cuba. Right. So they have a list. That's one of their main goals is to say that we don't want to hear the jokes about black women being not as worthy as white women or we don't want to hear the jokes about black women's hair or we don't we we don't want to have our daughters feel like the only image that they see of themselves on TV is a mammy figure from the slave period or as a prostitute. Like we really need to change the way Cubans see black women. And so that's what it evolved into. Um, and then they published this great book in um, 2012, an edited collection, which was essays, some historical and some about the present. But I really recommend the book Afro-Cubanas by um, Daisy Rubieta and Ines Maria Matiatu. In addition to Afro- Afro-Cubanas, uh, what other groups or movements are working to address issues related to racism in Cuba? I think there are a number of different groups that are doing work. Probably the main one that I would talk about is the uh, regional Afro-descent articulation of Latin America and the Caribbean Cuba chapter. So it's the abbreviation is ARAC, A-R-A-A-C. So I think one of the things that's most fascinating about the work, the anti-racist work that groups are doing now in Cuba is how it is a regional and hemispheric, it has a regional and hemispheric tone to it, right? People of African descent throughout Latin America have created groups to say, one, we want our countries to recognize that blackness exists in Latin America. Two, we want our culture and our history to be valued. And we want to talk about continued struggles of discrimination and prejudice. And so this um, Iraq does this work in Cuba as well. And this is another really important sort of anti-racist movement. But so the Cuba chapter of this organization is an important part of that, doing that same type of work here in Cuba. So they'll have meetings, groups of intellectuals will come together. They'll have um, in the National Library, they often have lectures where they invite the community in and they'll have uh, a speaker talk about racism today in Cuba or give a talk about a historical moment that maybe hasn't been included in Cuban textbooks that they want to clarify, like uh, maybe about the slave rebellion um, the, of um, 1812 with Aponte. So that's just an example of the type of work that they're doing. It's really educational work. What effect do you expect the normalization process in U.S.-Cuban relations to have on conditions for Afro-Cubans, especially as more Americans, Afro-Americans, and American companies with uh, progressive racial beliefs come to the island? Yeah, I think this is a really great question. And one of the things that I'm thinking about with this is I think I'm just waiting to see, is in some ways I think the normalization process of U.S.-Cuban relations is going to open up more economic opportunities for all Cubans. 
Um, but I think one of the challenges will continue to be, like what we saw happening with so many of the joint ventures that came out of the, after the special period, is the question about is how much access will Afro-Cubans have to new job opportunities, um, the capital investment, whatever happens, right? Because one of the things that you see currently occurring on the island is this issue of remittances. If there are fewer black Cubans who left the country, whether it was in the 60s, 70s, or even now, and the Afro-Cubans who do leave don't have the resources to send money back, Cuba's now open. There's a whole sort of bursting at the seams tourist industry, right, which means that they're not enough government, they're not enough state-owned hotels, so they have all these Airbnbs. But the people who can open Airbnbs are people who are able to receive money from um, outside of the country, are people whose family members are able to send them all the furniture and the TVs or whatever they need to outfit their Airbnb. So then most of the people who own these Airbnbs and the nice apartments tend to be white or lighter skinned. So if we continue with that same pattern, the normalization of U.S.-Cuban relations might not make a difference in if we continue the same pattern. I actually think that Cuba in some ways has recognized that this pattern is happening and that because of the work that the activists are doing, I think there's a real hope that it won't repeat itself, that only certain people have access to new economic opportunities. But I think we have to wait and see. What about the potential dialogue or exchange between Cuban groups and American activist groups like Black Lives Matter? So this is, there's certainly potential between dialogue and exchange between Cuban groups and American activist groups, but I think there are two really big points. One, there's a long history of African-American and Afro-Cuban exchanges and interactions. Um, Frank Garitti's book, Forging Diaspora, does an excellent job of talking about this before the 1959 revolution and talks about the educational exchanges, the cultural exchanges, the tourist exchanges that happened between African-Americans and Cubans throughout the Jim Crow South, South period, right? And at the same time, some of those, those interactions don't just have that early 20th century history. They also go into the 60s and 70s. And so in my book, I also explore the ways that African-Americans worked with Cuban leaders and Afro-Cubans throughout their, um, their early 60s. So I think because there's such a long history of already interaction and exchange and dialogue, both around racism, but economic opportunities and educational opportunities between African-Americans and Afro-Cubans, that of course that will continue. I think the second major point though, is that we don't always have to look to the, Cuba doesn't always have to look to the United States for its interactions and exchanges. One of the things that's fascinating about the regional, the hemispheric anti-racist work that's going on in Latin America is that Cubans are already in dialogue with Colombians, with Ecuadorians, with Brazilians about how can we do more anti-racist work here in our country because that work is happening throughout the hemisphere. So I think there's going to be plenty of dialogue and exchange based on a long history that will continue between Cuba and the U.S. and black activists in both spaces, but it will also continue to be a regional element to it. Looking ahead, as Cuba's leaders age and are replaced, uh, do you see successors seeing uh, the efforts for racial equality as a threat to the regime or, or to a, a significant degree helping to keep the country's revolutionary spirit alive? I think the current critique will help to keep the revolutionary spirit alive. In some ways, um, I've termed it in the epilogue of my book, a revolution inside of a revolution. I think black and mulatto activists have been long supporters 
of the revolution. They believe in its goals and its ideals, and I think they're going to keep pushing the revolution to meet those goals, right? So Sarah Gomez, a filmmaker that I study and I talk a little bit towards, about towards the end of the book, once talked about the idea of the, quote, perfectible revolution, right? This idea that we have to keep working every day to perfect our revolution. And I think that's both what black and mulatto activists, but in many ways all Cubans, I think, really believe. And what do you see the receptivity, the, the level of receptivity to this in the next generation of, of Cuban leaders? Uh, once the Castro brothers are, are off the scene, will their successors feel that they have to be holier than thou, more pure, or will they, will they see this as a continuing process? I mean, that's a really interesting question. I think what's most important for the Cuban leaders that we see coming up and now and um, doing is for them to be responsive to what Cubans want. Um, I think that's what's going to be most important. And I think they're open to that. In some ways, I think it's important for us to, to recognize that many of the economic and social reforms that have happened in the two, past two decades in Cuba have been in response to what people wanted and needed. And I think as long as the new leadership continues to do that, I think there's a real opportunity. How do you see U.S. reaction among congressional critics and around the country uh, and its likely impact on relations going forward, especially the more supportive views we hear of younger Cuban Americans? Yeah, so one of the um, websites that I love to go to for answering this question is a website called Engage Cuba that has a number, it has polling, right? So it keeps you up to date on the current polling. And it talks about how 81% of Americans support expanding travel to Cuba. And 51% of Cuban Americans agree with Obama's decision to normalize relations. So I think in some ways, it's really fascinating to think that most of the people in this country agree that we should be moving towards normalizations and are excited about what Obama's doing and want to travel to Cuba. And I think that includes Cuban Americans and especially second generation Cuban Americans. I think the other thing that's important is we have to recognize that the Cuban-American population in the United States is changing a lot. There, are, there have been many waves of immigration to the United States, including that sort of first wave of Cuban exiles in the 1960s, but they are no longer the only people speaking for Cuban-Americans. So especially if you think about Cuban-Americans who have arrived in the 80s or in the 90s or even now in the past five to ten years, many of them, their relationship to Cuba, their relationship to is so different than maybe earlier generations um, because of the fact that they travel frequently, they go back a lot, they want to send money back to support their families. They live transnational lives, right? So they, of course, want to see a normalization of relations because they want to be able to travel more easily, send money back more easily, communicate, right, with cell phone and Internet more easily with um, their family members on the island. And I think hopefully that will make a difference in U.S. policy, like official policy about the embargo. Professor Benson, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been a really great conversation. I'm excited that World Policy Journal is doing this type of work around Black Lives Matter everywhere. So again, thank you for inviting me. Devin Spence Benson is an assistant professor of history, African and African-American studies at Louisiana State University. Her new book is Anti-Racism in Cuba, The Unfinished Revolution, from the University of North Carolina Press, excerpted in World Policy Journal's new spring issue under the headline, Not Blacks, But Citizens. (music) 
Featured in the new WPJ Spring issue, Black Lives Matter Everywhere, you'll find articles about black power in the French banlieues, about South Africa's racial revolution, in theory, and about building black solidarity across national borders, plus safety in the age of artificial intelligence. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on unintended consequences of India's war on sex selection. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.